Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we cover a topic that is both timely, super relevant to the coronavirus situation, and often misunderstood. We're talking about inflammation. Something we know is a driving force in chronic disease, as well as serious cases of viral and bacterial infection. To help break down and demystify this subject, we have a prior adaptation guest joining us today, Dr. Tom O'Brien. Episode 54, where Dr. Tom helped us understand the root causes behind the explosion of autoimmune diseases is well worth checking out if you haven't done so already. As a quick background, Dr. Tom O'Brien is a 40-year-plus holistic practitioner in the US with a focus on understanding and reversing modern lifestyle diseases. He has helped tens of thousands of people through his clinic, online presence, and two best-selling books, The Autoimmune Fix and You Can Fix Your Brain. I don't know if you've reached this conclusion, but the human immune system is utterly fascinating. It's the most complex system you can imagine, and it's all within each and every single one of us. You don't need to think about directing it or controlling it. It just diligently protects us 24-7-365. There's still so much we don't know. There is a lot that we do know. However, the knowledge is heavily distorted by the time that information makes its way through the media so-called experts, and finally, to your attention. Inflammation, oxidization, antioxidants, and antibodies absolutely fall into that category. Hopefully, by the end of this episode, you'll have a firmer grasp on these processes and entities. In this episode, we'll hopefully help you understand what inflammation is and how it occurs, and how it's a healthy and essential tool of your immune system. We'll explain the role that antibodies, antioxidants, macrophages, and vitamin D play in the protection and repair duties of the immune system. We'll contrast health inflammation with unhealthy chronic inflammation. We'll cover off some of the most dominant root causes and how chronic inflammation reduces your capacity to fight off external insults such as COVID-19 and other pathogenic infections. On top of that, we cover why autoimmunity occurs and ultimately what you need to do to live an anti-inflammatory lifestyle and create a healthy, non-taxed immune system. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. I'd really, really appreciate that. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, I sincerely hope you enjoy this timely, an informative discussion with Dr. Tom O'Brien as we explore inflammation, oxidization, and our immune health. 
Dr. Tom O'Brien, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. God, you know, it's been a year and a half ago since you were first on the show. It was December 2018, episode 54, I believe, where we spoke about the causes behind the explosion of autoimmunity and brain disease. I mean, a year and a half ago, time absolutely flies, doesn't it? It does. It does. You know, and looking back at everything that's happened and uh, that's why it's so important, I think, for all of us. And I always suggest this is that when we wake up in the morning, the very first thing, even before you open, you open your eyes are what are three things that you're grateful for uh, in your life? Whatever they should be. It may be I woke up this morning. I'm alive. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, but. If we start our day with gratitude, um, it, it puts a hue on what we see through our eyes and what we hear through our ears. And the, the next thing, uh, most everyone, they get up, first thing they do is go to the bathroom. And the very next thing after that, that I've always recommended, is drink two big glasses of water right away before anything else. Because when you hydrate adequately, Every tissue in your body functions better, every single tissue. So, uh, you know, yeah, so it's been a year and a half and so much has happened. And, and uh, uh, that's why I try to be grateful for every day. Great pieces of advice right out of the gate. And um, I try and do both of those. But you know what? When it goes wrong, you feel it. When you wake up in the morning, you don't drink first thing in the morning. You, you do notice that. But more importantly, when you're not grateful, when the first thing you do is pop open one of your social media feeds or jump into a news app, the day not only takes a turn for the worse, but you can be more grumpy, less sympathetic, less compassionate, less of a father, less of a husband. So I noticed that. I try my best to do that, but it's not always easy, right? Yeah, you, bet. you bet. It's less human. You're less human when you connect to uh, our computers first thing out of the gate. Uh, we're more, I'm, I'm not sure the correct word is roboticized. I think I just made that up, but Maybe. we're more, more mechanical. More Android. More, yeah, more Android. There you go. As opposed to being more human and then working with all the Androidian tools that we have at our disposal. Yeah, very true. Very true. So as I say, we did, we spoke, um, we had a great conversation a year and a half ago. We're going to try and keep this different but similar. So today, if we can, I'd like us to deep dive into the role of inflammation. We had spoken about that in episode 54 and oxidization. So what are they, how they operate in our bodies and the effects they have on immune health and fueling chronic health conditions. So that that's the frame or the theme for the discussion. And just one more thing. I think both terms have been totally vilified uh, as processes in our body. And hopefully we can get into the nuance of these natural bodily mechanisms, um, how useful they are for the body and what happens when they go wrong. So if you're up for it, why don't we get started with framing this in the context of uh, the situation we're in right now. So we are at the beginning of July 2020. We are a few months into lockdowns or various forms of lockdowns as it, relate, as it relates to COVID-19 and the pandemic. So out the gate, let's talk about inflammation in the context of immune health and whether it's something we should be thinking about. 
Oh my goodness. Uh, well, you don't have to think about it. It's an automatic survival function in our bodies. Uh, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have inflammation going on consistently 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Inflammation is the way that our bodies are protected from anything coming into the body that's a threat. And if we remember that our immune system, our bodies, our entire bodies, you have exactly the same body as your ancestors 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Exactly the same kidneys, the gallbladder, the, the pupil of the eye, the skin, the hair follicle, exactly the same. Everything's, you know, the immune system, everything's the same. And so what did our immune system have to protect us from? Well, the first thing I would say, you Mrs. patient, your immune system is the armed forces in your body. It's there to protect you. There's an army, a Navy, an Air Force, a Marines. We call them IgA, IgG, IgE, IgM, the innate immune system, the adaptive immune system, all of this geek stuff different branches of the armed forces there to protect you. And what did our ancestors need to be protected from? When our ancestors were foraging for food, so now we're going back 10,000 years ago before agriculture, and our ancestors were nomads. They followed the herds because that's how they found food was following the herds. And so they're walking around, they're looking for food, they pick something up, the first thing they do is smell it to make sure it smells okay, there's no threat, and then the next thing, they taste it, take a little nibble to make sure there's no threat, and then they eat it. Well, if there's bacteria on that food that hasn't putrefied the food yet, so it smells really bad, but if there's concentrations of bad bacteria on that food, the next backup system, and I've never talked about it this way, but it really is, the stomach is part of your immune system because the stomach produces hydrochloric acid. And the hydrochloric acid made in our stomach, you put it on a piece of wood on a wood table, it eats through the wood, but it can sit in your stomach all day long because the lining of the stomach accommodates this acid. But one of the purposes of the acid is to kill the bacteria that our ancestors may be exposed to in the food that they eat. And it did a pretty good job, but in our world today, it's called the 40-40 rule. 40% 40 of us by the age of 40 are making 40% of the hydrochloric acid we're supposed to. And that's a ballpark estimate, but the point is that most of us are not making the amount of hydrochloric acid we're supposed to. So you eat something that's got some bacteria, you know, you go to the refrigerator in the middle of the night and you don't turn the lights on in the kitchen, but you're hungry. So you open the door and there's some raspberries and you just grab the container of raspberries and you're starting to eat them. Then you put them back. You know, you, you don't eat them all in the morning. You go open the refrigerator door and you see that the raspberries in there have white mold on them. And you think, oh my God, that's what I ate last night. You know, when I wasn't, well, I was half asleep. And you're exposed to mold and you're exposed to bad bacteria. And if the acid in your stomach can't deal with it, then there are sentries standing guard just inside the first part of the small intestine. So anything that comes out of the stomach that is a threat, there shouldn't be anything. But if there is, there's a backup system. 
and the backup system are called your dendritic cells, and they immediately say, we got a problem here. This, this stuff isn't supposed to be here. We need to attack this. So the small intestine, the immune system in your small intestine starts producing inflammation. And the inflammation, <clears throat> it's like special forces. They've got high-powered rifles firing these chemical bullets called cytokines. And these cytokines destroy whatever's there that's not supposed to be there. So inflammation is our protective mechanism for something getting into our body that's not supposed to get into our body. Now, here's a segue for you. It's not quite relevant to what we're talking about, but it is in some ways, is that we now know, and I've got five, six, seven different studies in my files on this, and there are more, that every human, every time they eat wheat, activates the inflammation backup protective mechanism in the small intestines. Every human, every time, within five minutes of wheat getting into the small intestine, coming out of the stomach, we get inflammation. Just read the science. You know, you don't feel it when it happens, but we get excess inflammation and you create something called intestinal permeability or leaky gut, and the papers are really clear. Every human, every time they eat wheat, gets transient intestinal permeability or the leaky gut within five minutes of wheat coming out of the stomach into the small intestine. So that's an example of triggering too much inflammation in your intestines that, you know, we're not supposed to have that happen. Okay. But back to, back to the point here. Inflammation is our protective mechanism for anything that we breathe, anything that we eat, anything that we drink that is a threat in our bodies. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Tom. Um, would I be right in saying that inflammation also uh, supports muscle repair, um, response to infection, as you've said, as well as injury? So, you know, a scrape or a gash on your body you know, your white blood cells are part of this process of driving that inflammatory response. Am I, am I right in saying that? Oh, that's correct. And the white blood cells are part of the innate immune system. And that, that term and that, that aspect of our immune system function is ancient. That every mammal on the planet, as far as I know, has an innate immune system that has white blood cells and they're producing the soldiers that produce inflammation to protect them. You cut your skin, there's some bacteria on the twig that, or the thorn that cut your skin. That bacteria is now inside your skin. You better have an inflammatory response to protect you from whatever is getting into your body. You know, where we are now, right now in Costa Rica, um, there's a fair amount of mosquitoes here. And my body does not like mosquito bites very much. <laughs> so I get these welts that come up and they itch a lot. It's my body's backup protective mechanism against the threat of whatever was in the stinger of the mosquito that got under my skin. And I'm grateful for it to ask, all right, guys, that's enough. I don't need any more of that right now. It itches a bit. But it's, it's our, we, we have to understand that you don't want to suppress your immune system. It's there to protect you. 
but you do want to avoid excess activation of the immune system. And that's the big threat right now with this virus and the scare of the virus is if you have an excess response. Okay, okay. Let's carry on a little bit more on the inflammation trail, just a little bit, just to make sure that we've got all our bases covered. So so we've got things like injury, um, uh, training, muscle repair. Uh, we have all these processes you've said internally when something is ingested. When we think about inflammation, just the name, it strikes two things in my head at least. One is a swelling, and the second is inflame, fire. In my mind, they're two things that kind of come out. Um, are they? Does the word have meaning in that regard? Is that is the inflammation or the the swelling? Does that have a role internally? So if we think about that wheat example now, so we've just consumed some wheat, it's created some localized inflammation within the small intestine, within the barrier um, of our intestine. Is that is is that is that is that an actual swelling? And why is that happening? Is that a good thing or a bad thing that that's happening in that instance? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's uh, um, it, it can be both. It, of course, it's a good thing to have that immediate response and protection, but it also can be excessive. It's too much. Most of us think of inflammation as something bad, something wrong. And doctors are taught um, it's in our first year of our education. It's called calor, dolor, rubor, and tumor, which means heat, pain, redness, and swelling. And that's the four classical signs of inflammation that's been around since the first century. The Romans wrote about this way back in the first century, that um, that's what inflammation looks like. Well, that's what excessive inflammation looks like, mm -hmm. that we now know technology has improved so much. We know that there's inflammation going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, protecting you. Here's an example. Mrs. Patient, you have an entire new body every seven years. Every cell in your body regenerates except for your teeth. Every other cell. So the question is, are you regenerating healthier cells or weaker cells? Are you getting younger or older? And the vast majority of us, are getting older, you know, we're getting weaker and weaker. And perhaps we'll talk about in another episode why that happens, because it's a long discussion and how do you turn it around? But every cell in your body regenerates, except for your teeth. How does that happen? Well, you have to get rid of the old cells, the damaged cells, the worn out cells to make room for new cells. And that process is done by both the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. The adaptive immune system is the immune system that makes antibodies. Now they really are the special forces uh, in your body. Um, they're the backup when the innate immune system can't get its job done. But in the area of regeneration and making new cells, the process is called autophagy. It's a really good scrabble word. A-U-T-O-P-H-A-G-Y, autophagy. And what it means is getting rid of the old cells and making new cells. And we all have that going on in every tissue of our body, except our teeth, all day, every day. So it's the antibodies 
that get rid of the old and damaged thyroid cells. That's why there's a normal reference range for antibodies to thyroid on a blood test. There's a normal reference range that the laboratory tells you. Usually it's between zero and 42 or zero and 44, depending on the lab. There's a normal number of antibodies to the saran wrap around your nerves called myelin. And if you lose too much myelin, that's MS. But we have to get rid of the old myelin cells to make new myelin cells. And antibodies do that. So our adaptive immune system consistently, all day, every day, is creating a little bit of inflammation with the antibodies to get rid of the old and damaged cells. That's normal. That is essential so that we can, we can regenerate and we can continue because our cells wear out all the time. And um, you, you don't have the same heart cells or the same brain cells. Every cell regenerates. So the goal here, of course, is to regenerate healthier and younger cells. But for today's conversation, the topic is the understanding that you need your immune system working well to get rid of the old cells. So there's room for new cells. Mm -hmm. That's one of, and that is an inflammatory process. So we can't think of inflammation as a bad thing. Excess inflammation is a bad thing. If you have excess number of antibodies to your thyroid, you head in, in the direction of developing the autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's thyroid disease, or Graves' thyroid disease because you're making too many antibodies. But there's a normal reference range that we're all supposed to have for all of these inflammatory markers. So please don't think I have to shut down my immune system from creating inflammation. No, 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 no. We have to shut down our immune system from excessive inflammation, yes but not shut it down with anti-inflammatory drugs that are broad spectrum to just shut down everything. We don't, that may be essential for people that are suffering greatly right now with a diagnosed autoimmune disease because they can't function. You may take, need to take that kind of powerful medication for a short period of time to shut down your immune system or if there's a cancer, but it's for a short period of time while you deal with the trigger of why the, inf the inflammation is so excessive right now. So where, for example, with thyroid, just go to PubMed and type in thyroid and BPA, which stands for bisphenol A. It's one of the chemicals used to mold plastic. It's in the category of phthalates, phthalate chemicals. And BPA, every time you drink out of a plastic water bottle, you're getting minute traces of BPA. And there are a number of studies that show when that gets in your body, one of the tissues, there are many, but one of the tissues it has an affiliate, an, an attraction to is your thyroid. So BPA, the chemical, grabs onto your thyroid and hangs out in your thyroid and your immune system says, what's this? This isn't supposed to be here. I better fight this thing. And now you make more antibodies to your thyroid to get rid of the BPA that's hooked onto your thyroid. And that may be a contributing factor in the development of autoimmune diseases. Just read the science and you go, oh my goodness. Well, 
Would it be a good idea to reduce my exposure to BPA? Absolutely, it's a good idea. You know, so our immune systems are there to protect us. Mm. And that's the first takeaway here today. You want a healthy, strong immune system. If it's okay, I'd like to give you an example that relates to this current virus that we are dealing with. Go for it. Okay. There was a pandemic in 1918 that was referred to as the Spanish flu. And uh, millions, millions got sick. And uh, the estimates are hard to accumulate from that time. Some studies say 23 million people died. Some say 54 million people died. But it was a pandemic across the planet. They found four people buried in the Arctic tundra who had died in the 1918 flu on an army base way up in the Arctic. And because they were buried in the tundra, their bodies were frozen and did not decay. So they said, let's dig up these bodies and see how they died. This was in 2004. And some of the newspapers were saying, no, no, don't dig it up, don't expose the virus. But they took precautions and they, they dug them up and they did biopsy, autopsy, and biopsy of the lungs, and they found out how these people died because people died within one to two days. They went to work healthy in the morning, and sometimes they never came home. And these were young, vibrant, healthy people, not the old and sick. Um, a large percentage of the people that died in that flu um, were young and healthy. So they found out how they died, and the immune system uh, in the lungs and other parts of the body but one of the soldiers of the immune system is called macrophages, and they are first responders. That if you breathe something in that's not good for you, the macrophages fire chemical bullets called cytokines, and they destroy whatever that thing is that they recognize and they're fighting. You know, you're on a plane, and the guy behind you is coming back from Mozambique, and he coughs into the air, and there's Measles, he's got the measles and you breathe in measles. Well, your lung macrophages, if they recognize this is a threat, start firing chemical bullets and activate the antibodies to measles so that you destroy this thing. But the macrophages are the first responders. It's a good thing. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have those kind of first responders. But what they found out in these people is that the macrophages, which were special forces with high-powered rifles firing their chemical bullet, the trigger on the high-powered rifle got stuck and became a submachine gun. Pop, 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 Creating many, many, many cytokines, and they termed it a cytokine storm. And the excessive amount of inflammation from these cytokines created the the large amount of inflammation, the large amount of fluid, here's pneumonia, and they died within a day to two days. That's what a cytokine storm does, that the, the immune system trigger on the rifle gets stuck, the spring doesn't pop back, and it gets stuck in the on position, and now you've got a submachine gun. That's what a cytokine storm was. After that, or is, and that's what's happening now for some people. Now, it, it usually is elders in this current virus. Next, the next year, 2005, in the journal Blood, 
they a really good journal. They identified that look at this with this cytokine storm. Now we know that vitamin D is con completely controls the trigger on the macrophages. Vitamin D causes the trigger of spring to activate so the trigger stops and you fire one chemical bullet or two chemical bullets, but not a submachine gun. We know that that's the case. Vitamin D is a major controlling mechanism for that. But what we didn't know until 2005 is how that mechanism works. And now we know. So when you get exposed to the sun and the rays of the sun, the UV rays convert the hormones in your skin to vitamin D, it's called 25-hydroxy-D. And that's the circulating um, on the highway of your bloodstream type of vitamin D. The active form of vitamin D, and it gets converted in the kidneys and in the lungs and many other tissues, the active form is called 125. So the 25 doesn't really do much, it's just there, it's the good raw material for many, many functions in your body, but it has to be converted to 125 in order to be active. What they found out is that macrophages, only when they've been activated to fire a chemical bullet, only then macrophages activate the conversion mechanism inside a macrophage to change 25 vitamin D to 125 vitamin D. And 125 vitamin D is the emergency break. So if you don't have enough vitamin D in your system, if you're low in vitamin D, your trigger gets stuck in the on position. Your immune system trying to protect you gets stuck in the on position and you can create a cytokine storm. So this 125, it's like you're driving your car and now you're on the highway and you're driving your car and it's a beautiful um, super highway going through the country and you're doing um, good speed, you know, your speed limit, but you're, and now there's a steep downhill part. So you're going downhill and you see the car is speeding up a little bit. Well, you take your foot off the accelerator because you're going at the normal speed, but then you also sometimes have to ride the brake a little bit to not go too fast. And so when you're going downhill, sometimes you have to ride the brake. 125 is the brake inside the macrophages so that you don't get the trigger stuck in the on position. So if you're low in vitamin D, you don't have enough blood levels of vitamin D, so it can't convert enough vitamin 25 to 125, you get this cytokine storm. And that's why it's so, if you just look at any of the science coming out from any country in the world right now, dealing with COVID, what you see when they look at the people in hospitals and the people that don't have good results, over 85, depending on the study, 85 to 92% of them are low in vitamin D. Now that's why it's because that's why they have a hard time. One of the reasons is they don't have the break when they're going downhill and the trigger gets stuck on the on position and now you fire 
a submachine gun and here comes the cytokine storm. And unfortunately, many people have not survived. But I give you that big picture of what we're currently dealing with. So hopefully everybody gets their vitamin D level tested. It's really important and it's inexpensive. But also to understand your immune system is there to protect you. Inflammation is there to protect you. Excess inflammation is a problem. I love that. Thank you for detouring through that. We've had Ivor Cummins on. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Irish uh, gentleman focuses mostly on kind of heart disease and metabolic health. And he has majored on vitamin D. He's done uh, various um, various talks on that and has gone through all the studies, shared some influenza data on the correlation between vitamin D deficiency and prevalence of um, influenza A and influenza B. I've been convinced yes. about vitamin D and its value for our immune system for quite some time and I'm not a scientist and the data as you say coming out of all these kind of COVID-19 analyses are suggesting one vitamin D deficiency seems to be highly correlated with serious cases but two um, as we know the BAME uh, community typically have less vitamin D if they are in northern climates uh, because their their darker skin color is not converting as much vitamin D is that correct? Yes, it is. Unfortunately, well, um, so the dark skin color is anywhere on the planet, but in the northern climates, there's no, the sun is not as powerful. It's lower in the sky, so there's less of the UV rays, except in the summertime. There's less of the UV rays um, uh, to convert the hormones in our skin to vitamin D. Uh, so it's it's a crit. Uh, I've said this for so many years. If there's only one blood test you're going to do every year that's going to have the biggest bang for your buck to stay healthy, it's not cholesterol. It's vitamin D. Glad you said Every that. cell of your body requires vitamin D. Every single cell, without exception. There are receptor sites on every cell of your body for vitamin D. There's only one other substance I know for which there are receptor sites on every cell of your body, and that's thyroid hormone. Because thyroid hormone controls... Um, it's like the thermometer on the wall in, in your home that you turn it down at night when you go to sleep because uh, you don't need to burn so much fuel. And then in the morning, it automatically turns up higher. The furnace kicks in. And so the house is warmer by the time people wake up. It's the thermostat on the wall. Thyroid hormone is the thermostat inside every cell of your body. We call that your metabolism. But that's thyroid hormone. It's on. There's receptor sites on every cell of your body for thyroid hormone and vitamin D. That's how important it is. You always wanna make sure you and your family have optimum levels of vitamin D, not the low end of the reference range, but rather the high end of the reference range. Really important. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've spoken about inflammation being induced by an infection, but let's talk about whether excessive chronic inflammation can actually weaken the immune system as and when your immune system has to kick into gear with a threat, whether it be a virus, a bacteria, or some other some other external insult. So yeah, let's just re restate that. We've got inflammation induced by these cytokine storms and the lack of vitamin D not putting the break on. But we've also got uh, a modern day society where inflammation is running rampant. So if if I as an individual 
have excessive inflammation throughout my body, does that change the strength of my immune system and its ability to fight out other external insults such as bacteria and viruses? Oh, critical, critical. Um, we've known for, uh, I don't know how many decades, uh, probably three decades. Let's see, I've been doing this for 40 years now. Oh, that's embarrassing to say. Uh, I, I uh, went out into practice in 1980, Valentine's Day in 1980 is when we opened our doors. Uh, but we've known, I think for 40 years or more, that um, uh, if there's only one general concept that the public should focus on as their guidelines on what information to take in and what information is peripheral. If there's only one concept, the concept is live an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Meaning everything you do in your life is either going to cause inflammation or reduce inflammation. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you're highly stressed, you're too inflamed. If you're eating bad food, you get lots of the most common source of excess inflammation is what's on the end of your fork. You know, so that's number one, actually, is what we choose to eat. But living an anti-inflammatory lifestyle in all of its manifestations is the healthiest thing that the general public could do to stay healthy and vibrant. And if you want guidelines on how to do that, there is no better guideline anywhere in the world than the book that was written about nine or 10 years ago called The Blue Zones. Scientists looked and recognized that there were cultures around the world that had high percentages of people living into their 80s, 90s, over 100, fully functional, valuable members of society, not on any medications and really contributing to their families and society. They've not been put out to pasture in a retirement home, fully functional. And they, on a map of the world, they circled these places like Costa Rica, uh, Okinawa, Sardinia, you know, and they, they found and, and they called them blue zones. Now, I thought when I heard about this, um, National Geographic did a special on it many, many years ago, and I read a paper before that. Oh, blue zones. Okay, blue. Okay, so it must be the water that they've got clean, clear water. No, that wasn't it. Oh, Lord, it must be the air in these different parts of the world, these little pockets of really clean air. No, no, that wasn't it. They used a blue highlighter. And so they <laughs> the blue zones. You know, and I love those little pearls of irrelevance because it, you know, it just makes it human when you're learning all this stuff, right? They found a blue zone just outside of Los Angeles. And what? Uh, in the town Loma Linda. Well, Loma Linda is the center for the group called Seventh-day Adventists that have a way of living life that's different than everyone else. And when they realized that the Seventh-day Adventists had the same percentages of longevity and full function as in Okinawa or Sardinia, it just completely changed the paradigm as to what are the secrets to a long life. And so then they put it together 
And there are nine features of a blue zone lifestyle that reduces excess inflammation in your body and allows you to have a vibrant, strong immune system that keeps you going and protects you without overreacting. And the book is called The Blue Zones. And I've often said, this is the book. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies of the value of vitamin C and taking vitamin C every day. There's maybe thousands of studies on vitamin D and taking vitamin D every day. Many, many studies on the value of these different nutrients and supplements and diets and things. But this book is where the pedal hits the metal. These are the people that consistently are living long, vital, healthy lives and not getting degenerative diseases. You wanna live a long, vital life? You read The Blue Zone and you understand then what it takes and you'll see where your current lifestyle may be falling down and sabotaging you. Uh, uh, but, but that's what you wanna look at in terms of living an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. That's the key mm. to vitality and longevity is an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. That doesn't mean shut down the immune system, stop all inflammation, absolutely not. Because you still have to have rubor and dolor and uh, color and tumor. You still have to have heat and pain and redness and swelling because we're going to get poked by thorns. We're going to step on something. You know, we're going to be have invaders come in our gut because of something we ate. So we have to have a strong immune system, but not an overexpressive immune system. I love. I love that you mentioned that. There's, you know. I'm, I train fairly extensively. I, I like doing strength training. Um, I know swelling occurs. You can see, you can see swelling occur in your in your muscles as you train. And we we know, you know, that just the layman, you know, lifter understands or should understand the process of damage and repair. Inflammation plays a critical role in that, right? So this isn't just external yes. insult. This is just doing life. Doing life is going to cause inflammation. You want to do that do that well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the best pains that I enjoy is the pain a day and two days after, uh, after I tax my body exercising a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, I've not pushed it too hard during the workout. You know, I'm going to fatigue perhaps. And I say, Oh, these last couple are really hard, but all right, good. I'm doing, I'm not hurting myself. I don't feel pain, but the next day I'm sore and, and sometimes for two days. And I say, Oh, good. That, that was a good workout because I know that soreness, that pain, that inflammation that's in the tissue is gonna make stronger, younger, healthier cells. That's the process that you go through, right? So the rule is always when you're exercising up to, but not into pain. So you just wanna come up to that border and tax it a little bit, mm -hmm. and then you build a little stronger muscle. You're, you, know, you, you don't wanna like lollygag with exercise, you know, you, you just want to tax yourself a little bit because that's a healthy immune response to get rid of the old and damaged cells and you make new cells and you make more new cells. They're younger, they're stronger. So you can do more with the bigger bicep or, you know, the better quadricep muscle in your leg. You know, you can walk further. You can walk uphill a little easier, easier without huffing and puffing. 
that's the result of, of smart exercise. Yeah, 100%. Now, I'm also glad that you mentioned the blue zones. So this may may come across slightly controversial. It's not intended to. Um, but there there is usually a reductionist perspective when people cite the blue zones. Now, I have a bit of beef, excuse the pun, on veganism uh, and the misinformation that drives the narrative and activism across the world right now. I have issue with it because I think there is a lot of misinformation. But central to one of those themes is both the China study and the Blue Zone work. And I can respect, fully respect, that the Blue Zones absolutely are producing centenarians or older people who are vibrant and have good health spans. But the reductionist messaging out there is that it's exclusively a plant-based dominant diet excluding you know the fact that they have community that they have you know they they have a lifestyle that is non-stressful that they they get a lot of outdoor activity a lot of sunlight uh, they probably rest quite well they're not overly stressed like there's a lot of factors there that put a as you say like nine principles of their way of living that create an anti-inflammatory environment in which they live but unfortunately, you hear that it's only because that they have a plant-heavy or a plant-dominant diet. Uh, and I just think that's misleading. I mean, have you got anything to say uh, on that front? Yeah, I've never seen anything in the Blue Zones that says it's vegetarian. Um, it does talk about plant-dominant, that all of these elders eat lots of vegetables. And I always say the most important thing is to do a rainbow diet lots of colors of the rainbow in every meal, not just one meal a day, but every meal, the majority of your food needs to be deep, rich colors of fruits, mostly vegetables and some fruits. Every meal, without exception, period. There's just too much science on that. Now, what about red meats? Some people thrive on red meat, some people don't. What about fowl, chicken, and rabbit? Some people thrive on having higher protein diets. Some people don't. But I've never seen anything that says the Blue Zone declares that you have to be vegetarian or not eat much meat. You just eat quality meats, you know, the sheep that they raise. I agree. And I mean, that's what they're eating. So all of these people that are, are saying the Blue Zone says you have to be vegetarian, you can't eat meat. That's nonsense. Show me. Show me where it says that in the book. You know, it, it doesn't. And, and, and that's not how these people live. They don't eat a lot of meats. You know, they eat fish in Okinawa, a fair amount of fish, and they, they don't eat much beef there. Well, that's because cattle don't roam there, you know, so they eat more fish. So the um, I think a bigger picture concept is what percentage of protein should a person include in their diet? And then that protein has to have high biological value. You know, the sickest people I see are vegetarians because they don't know how to do healthy vegetarianism. And they think eating a bunch of grains will give them the proteins they need. No, it won't. Not unless you know how to mix your proteins to increase the biological value of the protein. You know, and people just don't know this. And so they have an opinion that meat is bad for you. And I want to respect people's opinions. And yes, the way cattle are raised in this world today is contributing gravely to the 
um, climate change that's occurring. There's a lot of science behind that, but it doesn't have to be that way. There's better ways of raising cattle that don't cause the climate change that current practices do. So it's not the cattle that's the problem, it's the way they're being uh, bred and uh, raised uh, to increase volume that creates more of the greenhouse gases. Um, I love having some beef and I'll do that perhaps once a week, perhaps twice a week. Um, then we'll have chicken one day and then we have fish a couple days a week, you know, eggs. And so we alternate because for my wife and I, our bodies work really well with that. Some people do better with not so much protein. Other people do better with more protein. But to come up with these dogmatic statements just creates divisiveness and confusion for the general public. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And thank you for bringing your perspective onto that. It's um, it's much appreciated. And I actually think this is a great segue to what is that the the kind of the next part of where my brain's going with this, which is we've spoken about inflammation. You've done a great job of doing that, but tied and coupled to inflammation, at least in uh, the minds of people getting into this space, is oxidization. So let's talk about oxidization because and the, uh, the link to me is antioxidants, right? We talk a lot about the antioxidants in fruits and vegetables. What's missing in the narrative is that we produce our own antioxidant glutathione. So let's talk about what oxidization is, why it's necessary for the body, and how when gone wrong, or as part of a natural process, it does create inflammation too. When I was a child, my grandfather used to take my brother and I to the amusement park maybe once or twice a year. And I remember going a few times, you know, great, great memories when we were small boys. And one of the things we loved to do was the bumper cars. And I don't know what you call them in Great Britain, but, you know, you you're, you sit in this little electric car. Yeah, and call them the same thing. Okay, and the rubber around the whole thing, and you smash into each other. You know, you're driving around in this inside this Loads little house. Yeah, a lot of fun for little boys to do that, right? And you're bouncing into each other all the time, and you know, you get uh, you get whiplash, but you can't tell. You feel fine. It's because you're not going that fast, but you get jerked around quite a bit. That's how our bodies work. Cells are always bouncing into each other. That's normal for us. That's, that's the mechanism, the, the, the vibration that's going on. That's why there's a whole world of therapy that's vibration therapy with tuning forks, is to adjust the vibration by which you're bouncing into yourself, uh, your cells in your body. Well, when certain substances get inside our body, they cause this bouncing effect to create, it's like you knocked off the side view mirror and it gets knocked off of there. And we call those electrons, free electrons that got knocked off. You know, if you think of a cell, there's a, uh, an, there's a, a, a neutron in the center and then there's electrons that go around this neutron. We've all seen those drawings before. They look circular in movies or in videos that we've seen going round and round and round. And the electrons are going around the center. 
of that atom. Well, cells are just made up of a whole lot of atoms where the electrons are going round and round. Substances get into our body, radiation causes this, where you knock off an electron and it's not going around its neutron anymore, the center. It's bounced out and it's going out there and it's bouncing around all over the place. And it hits DNA and it causes damage to the DNA in the cells. These free electrons that are floating out there wreak havoc. And it happens to all of us all the time, you know, to a minor degree. And it's our immune system that protects us from all this stuff and absorbs some of these and gets rid of these free electrons. But when you get more of these things knocked off and bouncing out there free, they're called free radicals. They're, they're radical. They get out there and they're, they're damaging your DNA. And the DNA is the blueprint of how that cell is going to reproduce. So it's easy to reproduce mutant cells or a different cell if the DNA has been damaged too excessively by free radicals. What, what does that mean? When that mutant cell forms, that's the beginning of a precancerous cell. And that is at the molecular level where cancer comes from. You create all these free electrons bouncing around out there, damaging your DNA, which is your blueprint. And then when the cell's mechanism says time to reproduce, the blueprint says reproduce a mutant cell, a mutagenic cell. And this is really complicated stuff. I'm sorry, you know, I know it is. But if you think of bumper cars and, you know, our cells are always doing bumpers and one electron bounces into another, but it stays in its orbit while it's doing that unless it gets knocked out there and it's a free electron. That's why the world of antioxidants are so important because that free electron is, it, can, it causes what's called oxidation. And oxidation has nothing to do with oxygen in the body. It's just the term that they came up with for this. And these free radicals, this oxidation process of free radicals is the trigger that causes mutant cells in our body. So when you've got this electron, this free electron floating around out there, just bouncing off on its own, there's no order anymore to it, like bumper cars, you're just bouncing into each other. And you've got this free electron out there that's going to damage your DNA. You want to get rid of as many of those oxidized electrons as you can. So what does that? Antioxidants, that's where the term came from. Antioxidants are sponges that soak up free radicals. And so the more free radical exposure you've got, you know, if you're an x-ray tech in the hospital, you're getting lots of exposure and producing lots of free radicals. You need to take a ton of antioxidants. I'm exaggerating, of course. My, all of my pilot patients and my flight attendant patients, we have the same discussion. Why is it that, flight, that pilots have the highest incidence of lymphoma of any profession and flight attendants have the highest incidence of hormone problems and pregnancy loss and pregnancy complications of any profession? Because they're up at 35,000 feet every day that they're working 
And the amount of radiation they're exposed to up there is so much higher than at ground level. And the they're sitting inside an aluminum box that we call an airplane, and aluminum doesn't filter radiation from the sun. And you know, it's kind of like if you ever go skiing and you're up at the top of the mountain at 10,000 feet or something, you know that you better put sunscreen on because you're gonna get sunburned on your face. Whereas if you're down at the base of the mountain, it's not as much of a threat because the higher the elevation, the thinner the air, the less filtration of the UV light coming, UV rays coming from the sun. When you're in an airplane, you're at 35,000 feet. You've got no protection up there. And the result is that these people have so much oxidation going on because of their job all day, every day. And they don't know what to do about it. And I bring up the topic and they always say to say, oh yeah, yeah, I heard something about that. But they, no one's emphasized, this is the trigger, man. This is why you guys are so much more prone to cancers or to hormone problems and pregnancy problems. And they go, oh, so you need to take double or triple the antioxidants that everyone else takes three days before, all the way up to when you fly and three days after. And they all say the same thing. Well, that means I take them all the time. And I say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I fly a lot. I fly 150,000 miles a year. And so three days before I fly, I triple up on my antioxidants all the way up to my flying. And then when I reach my destination for three days afterward, I've tripled up on my antioxidants because I want those sponges in my bloodstream to suck up the free radicals that the radiation exposure caused. Even though you don't feel it, you've got all of these free radicals now in your body. So let me ask a question and apologies if I've got my understanding completely wrong. Um, but my understanding has been that a lot of the um, the antioxidants that you can buy, whether it be supplemental or, or in food form, um, what they're actually doing is they're pro-oxidative. They're, they're, they're creating some hormetic stressor. And in doing so, your, your body then naturally amplifies up its production of glutathione, and it's the glutathione that's doing most of the mopping up and or other vitamins, like vitamin A, C, or E. I'm not quite sure how they play the role. But if if that is true, and please correct me if I'm wrong, then understanding how to regulate your glutathione naturally through behaviors, whether it be cold therapy, hot therapy, living a life, uh, being out in the sun, you know, you can amplify and regulate your own endogenous production of glutathione to manage the oxidative stress of your life. Now, I guess what, what I'm missing is the guy who flies in a plane because you know they they're, they're screwed. They can't they can't respond as strongly as you as you can for just taking a walk when they're up in the air. So I can understand application there. But please correct my understanding if I've got it completely wrong. That these things are pro oxidative. That's creating an antioxidant response via the glutathione um, kind of upregulation. You are absolutely correct about glutathione. It's a stress response production that increases the production of glutathione. And glutathione is the master antioxidant. It's not the only antioxidant, but it's the master antioxidant in every cell of our body. And if you were going to focus on antioxidants, the first place to start where you get more bang for your buck is with increasing your glutathione levels. First measure to see 
what are your glutathione levels, how well is it working right now? And for most people uh, who have not looked into this before, it, they, they could use enhancing glutathione levels. So that's absolutely correct. But the other antioxidants, vitamin C, uh, conjugate linoleic acid, um, coenzyme Q10, vitamin D, these, um, they, they have a pro-stress response, but they also have an absorptive response. They've got both. Right. So it's not one or the other. It's both. And the glutathione is as you have described it. Uh, stress response production mechanism. Okay, thank you for clearing it up. It's useful for me, so I don't perpetuate nonsense, uh, and, and to no, the audience to make sure they understand it right too. You're correct. You know, but but when we learn, so I mean, I have done that so many times. I'm I'm uh, uh, labeled as the guy out there in the world that says nobody should eat gluten, and I have never said that, never. What I consistently say is if you have a health condition, you're not satisfied with the results, you need to test accurately to see if your immune system is fighting gluten. If it is, now you can't have gluten. And that's the, um, I have consistently said that message for the last 20 years now. Uh, I've been lecturing about the dangers of wheat outside of celiac disease. Uh, so. You know, there, there is, it's, it's convenient to try to package an idea inside of a box, you know, so that we understand it. Mm. Uh, uh, and so people have categorized me that way because they have to think a little bit more um, if, if they look into this. So, well, do I have a problem with wheat? I feel fine. Well, I don't know if you do or not. You have to test and you have to test accurately because most of the tests are not comprehensive. So, and that happens to all of us in life, you know, is that, and I've grabbed onto something and I'll do a deep dive and I call it going down the rabbit hole, you know, and I will research and research and research something and I see how critically important it is. And then I'm talking about that and people think that I'm locked in and that's all I believe about health is that thing. And that's not true. You know, this is a very important concept, but there's so much more. Uh, glutathione is a very important concept, but there's so much more than glutathione, but it's the, it is the master antioxidant. Got it. Now you've spoken about gluten. I think it's, I think we've got to jump on that a little bit because I do think there is a lot of, um, a lot of confusion. Um, you know, the, the reality is most people have lots of gluten in their diet and most people would subjectively say, I have no problem with that. Now, the problem is if you don't know what great feels like, you don't know. Like we're, we've kind of baselined on perhaps a 5 out of 10. You don't know if you could be at 10 out of 10 if you eliminate it. That's my first response, which is you don't know how good you feel because you probably haven't felt what great feels like. That's the first thing. But the second thing about gluten I kind of want to dig into is gluten is a grain. And we've had um, Kate Shanahan on, Dr. Kate Shanahan. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but... Um, she has a war against PUFAs, um, polyunsaturated fatty acids, for the these vegetable oils, these seed oils, being both oxidative and damaging to our cells, bringing and creating 
excess PUFAs into our cells when we should have a finer balance with more saturated fat within them. And she's blaming a lot of our issues, modern chronic issues, to the proliferation of PUFAs. Now, on top of that, we have obviously the world over. People um, label gluten as a vilified substance, but both of which, PUFAs and gluten, they're coming from grains. The more I read, especially when it's like, you know, we shouldn't feed our animals grain as well. There just seems to be a lot of demonization of grains generally, whether it's the production of oils or the production of wheat. What's your stance on agriculture? Because really, this is the essence of agriculture is the production of these grains into wheats and oils. Well, that's an interesting question. Do you have eight hours? I, I know it. Is. I know it's diff- I know. I know it's a challenging one. I just wanted to get your overall sense as to whether yeah, it's a good line. food for us. Bottom line, the, the bottom line, your body is exactly the same as your ancestors 10,000 years ago. Exactly the same function. We use our brains more, so we've got lots of comforts in our civilization. But physiologically, the body is the same. What did your ancestors eat? They ate what they could find. What did they find? Every once in a while, they'd make a kill. They had some meat once in a while for a couple days. But what did they find regularly? Nuts, seeds, berries, fruits, vegetables. That was it. That's what they lived on and the occasional kill and some meat. Why do we think that we can eat a ton of grains and that they're healthy. Well, the food pyramid has grains at the bottom and the most important thing to eat. Well, look and see who financed the food pyramid. You know, and you, I mean, if you start to do the research on this, it just drops your jaw and it makes you angry to see how we've been manipulated. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of grain once in a while. Absolutely nothing. But half your plate should be the rainbow diet. Half your plate on a regular basis. You know, um, so many people for breakfast will have a bagel or some toast. Uh, Maybe they'll have an egg, but they always have grains. Um, And it's, I mean, why do you think we have, there are so many reasons for what I'm about to say, but a strong contributor is the amount of grains that we're eating for the levels of obesity and diabetes that we have in our culture today. it's, It's never before in history. And and uh, uh, it is the primary thing that'll take us down. It's called uh, metabolic syndrome, which develops into pre-diabetes and then eventually diabetes. Uh, and being overweight and being obese is a huge problem. And I don't mean to uh, uh, categorize uh, uh, any any person, and I don't mean to downplay any person, but as a consumer out there, there's so much information to look at and so many different opinions. What do you believe? Well, how healthy does a person look who's talking to you? I mean, if they're packing an extra 100 pounds right now and they're telling you that you should be eating dot, 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 you you might want to question, you know, what? And nobody talks about this. I mean, when I'm on stage, I'm always telling doctors, how come you don't take care of yourself the way you tell your patients to take care of themselves? And, well, it's too stressful. I don't have time. Well, you know, that's what your patients say. 
what are you going to model here, right? And so grains are fine for most people on occasion. Meats are fine for most people on occasion. Healthy oils are fine for most people on occasion. The rainbow diet is the platform that everything else should come from because that's the way our ancestors ate. That's what your body is designed for. We don't like it. You know, we're really comfortable with having uh, bacon and potatoes and maybe an egg for breakfast. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it on occasion, you know, but it's, it's not balanced. All right, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> well, um, you see, yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with many of that. I do see there's two there's two things happening here. There's one, there's a fight against carbs, right? This idea that carbs are in of itself driving metabolic syndrome. But I think it's actually, a, there's finer print there. Because if you look at the carbs that we consume, I believe, and I think it's pretty obvious, that it's the refined carbs that are a problem. What are refined carbs? They're carbs from grains, from corn or from um, from wheat, principally. And these are industrial processes. As you've said, I mean, grains will have existed for as long as we have. Grasses have existed for a very long time. Um, but we didn't have the machinery or the know-how or the equipment to be able to access those grains, create both the the flour and absolutely not create the poofers, the the seed oils. And I think that's being lost in translation when we talk about how seed oils and flour in excess, which our diets absolutely do have, could possibly be bad because we've been doing this for quote unquote such a long time. We haven't. We haven't been able to access those nutrients or lack thereof, mostly calories, for most of our history. Albeit some people, you know, you would say, oh, we've been doing it for 10,000 years, but not the way we've been doing it now. Um, well, that's true. That's true. And we have not genetically changed to adapt. Now, you know, for the general public, there are so many terms you're hearing there, hearing here that uh, are overwhelming. I know that. So what's this thing about carbs or carbohydrates? Just know that they're sugars. Carbohydrates are sugar. And everybody knows you eat too much sugar, you get fat. Everybody understands that just as a basic premise. You eat too many carbs, you get fat because you're eating too much sugar. And then depending on if it's a whole grain or a refined grain, is it brown rice or white rice, tells you the amount of sugar and how fast it dumps into your bloodstream. But they're sugars. And everybody's threshold for how much sugar they can take in a day before it gets converted to fat is different. Depends on how beat up your system is. How much aggressive damage have you done growing up with Kit Kat bars and Coca-Cola or Mountain Dew or sweetened tea or whatever your thing was growing up. How beat up is your system determines what level of carbohydrates you can take in without the excess getting converted into sugars. And that's different for every person. So there's never going to be one diet. There are some markers that you can use. You know, there's two ways to measure the temperature in the engine of your car. In some cars, the hot light comes on and you have to pull over very, very quickly or the engine's going to blow up. 
But in other cars, there's a temperature gauge on the dashboard, and you can see the temperature gauge slowly climbing towards the red zone, which gives you the opportunity to do something before it's life-threatening, before the engine's about to blow up. Well, there are biomarkers, temperature gauges, that can tell you what's your sugar tolerance. And they're so easy to do, and, but they're geeky. They're not things that the general public understands, but your doctor should know this, and they just need to check a HOMA score, H-O-M-A, HOMA score. And it's a fasting blood sugar and a fasting insulin, and there's a formula you plug it into, and you look at your HOMA score. And it tells you, are you pushing your sugar boundaries too far? And if you're out of range, then you know, all right, I need to reel this back in a little bit because I'm just going too far. And it's so easy and simple and inexpensive. It's uh, fasting sugar times fasting insulin. So you multiply the two together and you divide it by the number 405. That's the formula. It's that simple. Fasting sugar, fasting insulin, they're inexpensive to do. Multiply it by 405, and that number, your HOMA score, should be below 1.9. If it's between 1.9 and 2.9, you got a problem. If it's above 2.9, odds are really good you're going to get diabetes in the next couple of years. You really have a problem. So it's so simple to see, have I blown out my sugar regulating system by the lifestyle I've lived up to now? And I don't like it that you're telling me that, Doc, but all right, these numbers don't lie. And if you have what's called insulin resistance, which is what the HOMA score is measuring, you got a problem. And no amount of talking about it is going to make a difference. You need to stop throwing so much sugar down your throat, period or you're gonna get diabetes and you're gonna pack on the weight. Most people pack on lots of extra weight when they have insulin resistance because they were told grains are healthy for them and they have to eat their grains. All right, I'll stop there. Yeah, I love that. No, that was great, that was great. Let's close on, um, so you, you speak about antibodies and you talk about how autoantibodies um, are a problem when kind of left unregulated and you speak about molecular mimicry in your book and so forth and we've spoken about wheat brief, briefly and gluten and, and there's 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 an antagonist there that occurs but when we think about this immune system this beautiful immune system you've described where there are antibodies circulating constantly creating some inflammation killing off cells so they can repair regenerate new cells beautiful thing why is it so easily duped Right? And I think that's the question that people probably think through at some point is like, if this is such a beautiful system that works so well, how does me having a sandwich every day and or having X food or Y food, why is it constantly getting screwed over? And why are we getting all these autoimmune conditions where the body is now mistakenly shooting at itself and causing degeneration and inflammation? <laughs> all right. Well, do you have a week to explain why do we develop autoimmune diseases? Um, well, that, what, uh, why, it, why is the body so 
quote unquote dumb is would 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 be the question is how is this happening to us why are we not smart enough for it to not overreact it's it's fighting for your survival it's doing its very best to help you survive why do i have autoimmune mechanisms going on doctor is because your backup immune system the adaptive immune system is trying to take care of what the innate immune system couldn't take care of. And so you make these antibodies, it's the backup system. You have bisphenol A all accumulating on your thyroid, and I'm using it because we talked about it earlier. And uh, because you keep drinking, um, you buy water, because you think bottled water is better than, the, the healthiest water you can drink comes out of your tap after it's gone through a really good filtration system. That's the safest water that you can drink. Bottled water, well, any water is better than no water in general. You have to hydrate. But water in plastic bottles may have sat out on the dock for a day or two days in the sun before it got shipped to the supermarket. And the heat creates more of those chemicals from the plastic getting into the water. Even if it's a non-BPA bottle. I'm sorry? Even if it's a non-BPA bottle. Oh, yes. Well, non-BPA, is it's, it's BPS. They just, nobody's heard about BPS unless you read the science. BPS is much worse than BPA, but, but the general public, no BPA, no BPA. So the company said, all right, let's find another chemical to mold plastic, and they made BPS, which is more toxic. But people don't know that. And so plastic bottle, plastic, period. Our lives are based on plastic. Uh, our fish has plastic, microplastics in it, in them now, because we dump our garbage into the ocean and the fish absorb all these plastics, these little pieces of plastic. Our bodies are so exposed to this stuff, these toxic chemicals. Every time you fill your tank with petrol, if you smell the fumes, you're smelling benzene. Benzene goes right up to your brain and kills brain cells right then, right there. Oh, I don't feel bad. Well, that's because we haven't killed off half your brain. <laughs> and but you know what's we- funny? What's funny is that most people like that smell. I included when yeah. I was younger. My daughter's like, oh, I love the smell of petrol, which is odd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, it's <laughs> killing brain cells. Yeah. And the reason, I, I, I won't go into that, but it's this toxic world we live in. The um, arguably the number one journal in the English language for children's health is the journal Pediatrics and the most well-respected journal. They published an article. It was a policy statement. Now, now, if you get published in Pediatrics as a doctor or as an author, you've scored. You're published in a premier journal. It's really great. High five to you. Congratulations. But a policy statement is the board of the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's a message that they want every pediatrician to know. This is not just an article of some doc's idea or some doc's research. This is a policy statement from the board. And what they said is that the Toxic Substance Control Act failed miserably to protect children's health and adults. And the numbers are 247 pounds on a, what is that in kilos? Let's see, one kilo is 2.2 pounds. So that's about um, uh, about 105, 110 kilos of chemicals are 
imported or manufactured into the United States per person per day, every single day. It's 27 trillion pounds, which equates to 247 pounds per person per day when you divide it by 350 million people, whatever the population is now. We are exposed to so many thousands of toxic chemicals every single day. Every newborn child in America has at least 280 chemicals in their bloodstream at birth that aren't supposed to be there. And many of them are brain toxins, neurotoxins. Every newborn has these. Just read the science. Why? Because mom is a toxic sewer dump. I'm sorry, but reality check. Mom has all these toxic chemicals in the fat of her body. That's where they get stored. That's how the brain gets them. Get this away from me, the brain says, what's in the bloodstream. So it gets thrown into fat. Your fat cells are depositories for 247 pounds that we're exposed to per person per day. And I don't know what the numbers are in Great Britain, but they're similar. They're obviously similar. And it's all of these chemicals that we're exposed to that are bombarding our body every single day. It's your immune system that has to protect you from that. But the only thing your immune system can protect you from is exactly what your ancestors had to be protected from. Bugs, parasites, viruses, mold, fungus, and bacteria. That's it. Nothing else. You are not equipped to deal with exposure to trichloroethylene. You are not equipped to deal with exposure to formaldehyde. But every kitchen cabinet Every bathroom cabinet, if it's not solid wood, they're press board. They've got formaldehyde in them that outgasses for years, minor amounts into the air. Every sheet, every comforter on your bed is soaked in flame retardant chemicals that outgas for years. Doesn't matter how often you watch them, there's still chemicals in there that outgas minor amounts. And the way that these chemical companies get away with this crap excuse me, but it makes me angry. You know, the way they get away with this is that they had the legislation passed, they paid off the legislators to pass the legislation that says no amount of chemicals can leach out or get into people that are toxic to those people. That means that you have to prove that the minute amount of flame retardant chemicals in your sofa that outgas into the air and you breathe that amount in, that that amount is toxic to you. There's no study anywhere in the world that says that. It's not toxic to you. There's no study that says the amount of benzene that you inhale when fueling your car is toxic to you. There's no study in the world. But this stuff is accumulative in your body. Mm -hmm. Give me 20, 30 years of this, and I'll give you one example, just one, and we'll close on this one. We'll wrap it up. Chicago, uh, 346 pregnant women. They collect the urine in the eighth month of pregnancy and they measure it for five different types of phthalates. Phthalates are chemicals that mold plastic. And there are many, like BPA and many others, BPS, but they just measured five of them. They looked at the results of the urine test and they put it into categories. The lowest fourth, the next one, the third one, and the highest fourth. 
They followed the offspring of these pregnancies for seven years. When these children turned seven years old, they did Wexler IQ tests on every one of these kids. There's not much in medicine that's all or every, but this was every. Every child whose mother was in the highest quartile of phthalates in urine and pregnancy, meaning her body was a toxic dump of phthalates, compared to the children whose mothers were in the lowest quartile of phthalates of urine and pregnancy. Every child in the highest quartile, their IQ was seven points lower than the kids in the lowest quartile of phthalates in urine and pregnancy. Now that doesn't mean anything to anybody until you understand that a one point difference in IQ is noticeable. A seven point difference is a difference between a child working really hard getting straight A's and a child working really hard getting straight C's. That child doesn't have a chance in hell of doing well in school because their brain never developed properly. Then just go to Google and type in phthalates, P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, phthalates and neurogenesis, nerve growth. Here come the studies that show that phthalates inhibit nerve growth and brain growth in animals and humans. And then you wonder why we have so many kids with autism. We are walking toxic sewer dumps and nobody wants to say it and nobody wants to talk about it and nobody wants to hear it, but that is why your immune system trying to protect you is attacking your thyroid because there's too much BPA on your thyroid and the collateral damage is damaging thyroid cells. And then you have to get rid of the damaged thyroid cells, so you make more antibodies to do that. And this continues every day because you've got more BPA exposure, because you use plastic containers in the kitchen to store your food that leach phthalates into the food when it's in the refrigerator. Or you put nail polish on, and the phthalates and nail polish are in your bloodstream in three to five minutes. Just read the science. Well, there's no evidence that the amount of phthalates and nail polish that leaches into your bloodstream is toxic to humans. That's how they get away with this crap. Because in isolation, and, um, and the, stud the studies stu the study suggest there isn't a big issue, but it's the cumulative effect of all our life exposures, right? Whether it's the food that we eat, the pesticides on our and industrial chemicals on our food, the, the pollution, the alcohol, the cigarettes, the radiation, it's all of this, plus the plastics, that That's exactly in combination right. is causing, I guess, I guess just warfare in our bodies every day. And unfortunately, there's some collateral damage. I guess that's what I'm hearing from you. That's exactly right. Now you're getting the picture. Now you're starting to understand this. That's what the book, The Autoimmune Fix, is about. How do you fix an autoimmune disease? You calm down the immune system's need to protect you and make those excess antibodies. How do you do that? You have to figure out why your immune system is trying to protect you. You don't shut the immune system down. You have to, you have to look at all, and it's overwhelming to do the kids uh, for the general public, completely overwhelming. That's why my second book, You Can Fix Your Brain, has the subtitle, Just One Hour a Week to the Best Memory, Productivity, and Sleep You've Ever Had. That's not a cutesy subtitle. That is the only way to be successful in dealing with this. Every Tuesday night, 
after dinner, every Sunday morning, after services, whenever it is, but every week at the same time, you tell your family, I'm excusing myself for one hour so I can learn a little more about how to keep us healthy. And then you go back to my book on the section on the uh, plastic storage containers in the kitchen, and you go and you look for the URLs for glass storage containers. And you, you go to mileskimble.com, you go to amazon.com, you go to the third one, I don't remember what it was. He said, oh, I like those. And you order three round ones and two square ones and one for the pie, and you pay with your credit card. And it took an hour. You hit send and you're done. You're done for the week. But never again will you poison your family with minor amounts of phthalates from the leftover food stored in plastic storage containers. Give the storage containers, the plastic ones to your husband to store nails in the garage. And people say, well, they've got plastic lids on them. So don't turn the, the containers upside down. You don't want the food touching the lids, right? And then next week you deal with nail polish. Then next week you deal with mold in your bathroom. And then next week you deal with trichloroethylene in, in your living space and how house plants can absorb 74% of the toxins in the air. And you learn what house plants to get in your house. And then next week you do the next one. And then the next week you do the next one. And in six months you've changed your life and your immune system starts to calm down. That's how you deal with autoimmune diseases one step at a time. Interesting. Very, very, very good. Great close to this. And I can't recommend your books enough, but I've read both of them. The autoimmune fix was fantastic. Uh, the, the second one, I was less interested to start because I, I, I thought my brain was functioning well, to be honest, but it's, it's great preventative medicine, right? Because you have to think about the, the, the impact, the neurodegenerative impact our lifestyles are having and being productive as a, as a younger person is going to pay dividends. So I think both of them are fantastic. You've done great today. Thank you so much for really digging into some of these topics so I, we can give our audience some further depth. You've done a great job. Is there any bow you want to wrap around this as we bring this to a close? Any final thoughts as well as just making sure people know where to find you? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a gift we have for you, I think, and I imagine you're going to post it on your website, uh, a handout on how to clean up the rooms of your house. Um, but the, I think the last thought that I would give you, um, 1986, a microbiologist wrote a paper in Australia, said, you know, I think that sometimes ulcers are caused by bacteria. Everyone thought he was a nutcase because everybody knows ulcers are caused by too much hydrochloric acid and you have to take antacids. And of course, all of the press and the advertisements say that because it's a multi-billion dollar industry every year for antacids. They've been one of the top 10 meds uh, for 20, 30 years. So they thought he was a nutcase. So what did he do? He did an endoscopy. He put a tube down his throat, took a picture of the healthy pink tissue of his stomach. Then he drank a beaker of bacteria, a beaker of this bacteria called Heliobacter pylori. Then he waited four days until he was feeling really sick. Then he did another endoscopy and took picture of the ulcers that were starting in his stomach. Then he took the antibiotics to kill the bacteria. 
Then he waited about a week and took and felt great and took pictures, did another endoscopy, took pictures of the healthy pink tissue of his healed ulcers. Then he published it. Then everybody knew he was a nutcase. Mm -hmm. But the World Health Organization thought this was so important, they sent his paper to every medical society in the world. Why? Because at the time, the number one cancer in the world was stomach cancer caused by heliobacter infections most of the time. And if doctors picked up on a heliobacter infection when they had dyspepsia or heartburn, they could prevent the development of stomach cancer. Everyone still thought this guy in that case, he was ostracized. 21 years later, he wins the Nobel Prize in physiology, Dr. Barry Marshall. He wins the Nobel Prize and what the Nobel Committee said, and this is the exact quote, who with tenacity and a prepared mind challenged prevailing dogma. You wanna live a blue zone life? You wanna be in your 80s and 90s vibrant and healthy and having relations with your spouse and playing with your grandchildren, go skiing or hiking in the Alps in your 80s? What you do now determines whether that's gonna happen or not. And it's the tenacity of one hour a week, every single week, and preparing your mind by listening to this podcast and other podcasts that, and reading my books to challenge the dogma of how you've thought healthcare should be taken care of. And you'll win your own Nobel Prize in health in your 70s, 80s, 90s. You'll be in your rocking chair just smiling, saying, I'm really glad I heard that interview. Oh, I love and that. with that, love and with that. that, I'd say thanks so much. <laughs> that is fantastic. Where, where can people find you, Dr. Tom? TheDR.com, TheDR.com. And there's a handout for you guys there. It's at TheDR.com, TheDoctor.com. Just don't spell the word doctor out. TheDR.com forward slash help. And when you do that, it'll take you right to the page and there's four or five handouts for you there uh, on how to clean up your kitchen, how to clean up your bathroom, how to clean up the living room of some of these toxins that you're exposed to. Beautiful. Good stuff. Well, listen, I hope you have a, a much more pleasant back end of the year than perhaps we've had in the first half. And I hope the world gets to normal uh, at some point and we can get back to you speaking and traveling and helping people and I can get back to my normal life. Uh, fingers crossed. But thank you for doing the work that you're doing. You're a force for good. Uh, thank you for giving so much time today grac uh, graciously. And I hope we can keep in touch. Thank you, Steve. A pleasure being with you. Take care. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, 
There's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.